Welcome to the Future Proof Podcast. I'm your host, Callum, and today we have a cracker of a guest for you who will be sharing an insight into the planning and policy initiatives driving the Hawke's Bay regional recovery efforts. Joining us is Billy Broff, seasoned planner with 25 years of experience in environmental and natural resource management. Alongside managing his own successful private consultancy, Billy serves on the oversight board of Hawke's Bay Regional Recovery Agency. With his deep roots in central Hawke's Bay, really brings a unique perspective to our discussion, not just as a planner, but as a local, intimately familiar with the region's recovery from Cyclone Gabriel. So thank you for joining us today, Billy. Kia ora, Callum. Happy to um, talk about uh, all things recovery with you. Awesome. Awesome, mate. Um, what I realised that one year anniversary was not that long ago, was it? It just happened. It's like the 14th, Yeah, just, just this week. Yes, that's correct. Just, just this week. In fact, I was at a um, commemoration hui on Sunday for Pitani Marae. Um, so I think the, the last official uh, function was on Sunday. Wow. Okay. What's the kind of sentiment in the community? Is it, is it kind of feel like we're in rebuilding stages or is there still a lot of pe people picking up pieces and stuff? Yeah, I think it's a bobbish way, Callum. Um, if I can use my attendance at the Pitani Marae hui, um, yeah. I think there are a lot of people that are still my mai or um, are still grieving around some of the losses that have occurred, um, mm. albeit 12 months ago. Um, similarly with people in the horticultural sector still trying to clean up silt and debris on their land, um, people with Category 3 housing uh, wondering how that's going to play out for them. Uh, and on the flip side, there are people, uh, and I'll use myself as an example, who reside in Havelock North who were largely unaffected aside from the mm. initial power outages and the like. So I think it's a bobbish way. I think people are trying to move on, but I think we need to move on respectfully and understand that yeah. we need to take people on the journey with us. And if we don't do that, I think we're going to get this risk of um, not so much a two-track recovery, but people who will be affected for a long time, and we really can't do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we get into the ins and outs of everything, uh, the planning details, could you give us a very quick overview of your experience and your background? Anything uh, good to know about Billy? <laughs> good to know. Okay. Uh, so I attended Massey University a long time ago, um, and I did a Bachelor of Natural Resource Management with some planning papers attached to it. Um, I had my first job in the Christchurch City Council, followed by a few other local authorities before moving uh, into private practice. Um, and that was, it was interesting, um, to say the least. Uh, first four out, I guess you'd say, in a blue chip consultancy firm, big shot from yep. someone who went through local authority to that change, as I'm sure many people listening to this podcast will attest. Uh, and then I decided to try my hand in central government, and I worked for the Ministry of Fisheries for two and a half years as a relationship manager. Um, and after, I suppose, that little uh, sidetrack to the journey, I started my own consultancy firm from 2009 onwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, impressive experience. And your experience is pretty much all local, right? You've got a very in-depth local knowledge as far as planning, right? Yeah, so born and raised in uh, downtown Waipawa, which is a beautiful little town. Um, in Central Hawke's Bay, um, but I did move around, so worked in Christchurch, Gisborne, Topor. Didn't go overseas, I still got to do the overseas experience part of my planning journey, um, but yes, for the last, uh, gosh, near on 21 years, local. Local to the core, Cal. Yeah, local to the core, right, I'm with you. Um, what drew you to planning in the first place? That's a really good question. I sometimes wake up at night thinking, why did I go planning? Um, but to be, to be fair, I, I do have a, a, um, a relationship with the tile or the environment. Um, I do genuinely care about environmental outcomes. Um, and I decided to uh, focus on a line of study which would enable me the best opportunity to work in that sort of area. Uh, and in, in all honesty, I actually wanted to work in the forestry sector because I thought driving a ute round forestry blocks managing forests would be pretty cool. Um, maybe not a bad career option what I did, given what's happened recently with forestry and the like and uh, the work that's left to do in that particular sector. But that's kind of where, my, where I started and why I got into uh, planning. Interesting. Um, and just moving on to the agency, just to give people a bit of an overview, because I think a lot of people, including myself, um, when, when events like this happen so far away, 
I'm not a local. I don't have any appreciation for it. Um, so I really appreciate you today jumping on to shine a bit of a light on some of the work and the recovery and, and also some of the damage and the, the loss that people have had to live through. Um, but for the agency, um, how, how does it all come together? Who do you collaborate or interface with? And I guess it's overall purpose, if you could summarize it for us. Okay. Uh, so I suppose to start with, um, it's worth outlining um, the Makariki Governance Group. And so Makariki yep. Governance Group is a collaboration of the five councils in the Tamatawa Maui Hawke's Bay regions. That's the Regional Council, Hastings District, Napier City, Central Hawke's Bay District, and Wairau District, plus the six post-settlement governance entities. So they form, I'm not afraid to say this, a co-governance layer. Uh, and initially they were set up as a regional development forum, so slightly different purpose. Um, but when Cyclone Gabriel hit, uh, they quickly turned their focus to the cyclone and how best to recover from it. And they determined that establishing a recovery agency that was locally led was the best way to do that. So foremostly, the recovery agency reports to Matariki, so that's our line of report. Yep. Uh, and the agency itself, um, I'm on the, still on the board of the agency, and the board is comprised of six members who are local and ca yep. capability-based. So I am the kind of the planning lens, I guess. And we have members from Tangata Whenua um, and Pacifica, horticultural um, uh, industry and the like. So it's, it's a capability-based board and independent chair. So that's the, the kind of structure of it. Yep. And in terms of its responsibilities and what it does, um, so, and I'll, I'll be very careful with this, Calum, and I'll read from my bullet points. <laughs> but effectively, the, the, the purpose of it initially was to prioritise the recovery projects in the region. And yep. given the scale of Cyclone Gabriel, and we can talk a bit about the, the damage itself later on, Yes. but in terms of the scale across territorial local authority and regional boundaries, of course, as we know, um, so that determined that you need an oversight regionally on projects, particularly the coordination and sequencing of those projects. Um, and given we've got limited resources, limited time at that space and the recovery point, I guess, uh, it's important to have an oversight uh, of those projects to make sure that the funding we have is effectively used. So that was one of the key purposes. Uh, the other one is to work with government, and that's a very important one. So they're kind of the interface, I guess, with the Cyclone Recovery Unit, which most of your listeners will be aware of, and the Minister in Charge um, of Recovery at the moment, or Emergency Management and Recovery. Um, so determining issues of funding and legislative powers. Uh, and lastly, to develop a regional recovery plan. Okay. Cool. Could you maybe touch on that, Billy, the Regional Recovery Plan? I can certainly do that. Uh, do, do you want to go through to the Matrik, uh, sorry, the cyclone itself in terms of the devastation, or do you want to go? We're going to move on to that. As, as, okay. Yeah, I've got a few questions for you later, moving on to that. Um, or All we right. can do it now, whatever you prefer, mate. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, I mean, uh, let, let's do the recovery plan, because it's pretty important. Yes. So uh, the, the recovery plan, I think, um, is one of, the, one of the key outputs of the agency at this moment, and I'll just say that we're working on version two of that right now, and okay. that will probably break cover sometime in March, I would suspect. Yep. But version one was developed around a series of locality plans, uh, and because we're very cognizant that each community within the districts had its own particular set of challenges, and we wanted yep. to make sure that whatever projects we were looking at sequencing and funding, uh, we had the flavour of the communities. And I guess that reflects that Cyclone Gabriel was, uh, I suppose, a little bit spatially variable in terms of the impact. For example, in Havelock North, there are some parts of Havelock that were quite badly affected, but others that weren't. Um, whereas you look at some parts of rural Hastings, they were terribly affected. So having that community focus and allowing the, those communities to articulate their concerns and the projects they wanted to see undertaken was really important. So the recovery plan is founded on a series of locality plans, is the, the first thing I'll say. And it ended up having 305 projects that were listed with a, a quite a staggering estimated cost of 4.1 billion. Blimey. So that gives you an idea of the scale of projects and costs involved. And of course, it's, it's fair to say that not all those projects have been completed. Some of those projects are short term. 
uh, and some of those projects are quite long term. Excellent. Thank you for that. That's a really good insight. Um, 4.1 billion, that's a staggering amount of money. Um, and I think in all my research, I understood that it is, this is the most costliest natural event outside of an earthquake for New Zealand. Is that right? That's my understanding, Callum. Yeah, I, I was actually trying to find that particular figure. Um, I did a quick look around on different sites and I, I came across, I think, a, a New Zealand figure of something like 14 billion. It's staggering. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the same number as well. Um, it's up there, that's for sure. Yeah. So as the as the sole planner, you'll bring the planning lens to the board. Um, what are you solely, what is your main sort of action points for you as the planner, Billy? Uh, it's a good question, Callum. Uh, and probably something I should have actually said, and I'm a bit remiss for not saying it in terms of the recovery agency. So there's the board level, which I'm a part of, then there's agency yep. staff. And like any good local authority or any good ministerial department, um, it's the staff that are the engine room. So yeah. we've, we've had some planners on secondment from, <clears throat> excuse me, from district and regional councils who are particularly good at their jobs. Uh, and I rely heavily um, on the advice from those planners in terms of my particular role on the board, it's the first thing I'll say. Um, but to answer your question particularly, um, so I, I apply that planning lens, particularly when it comes to the longer term focus. That's something I, I hope we can talk about a bit further, and that's the, the concept around the longer term spatial planning, um, that uh, a horrible disaster like this gives us the opportunity to explore as a region. Uh, and I think that's, to, to use a phrase, that's where the gold is, I think, if you're trying to be, or the silver lining at least, in the terrible cloud. Um, so I, I tend to look at... Uh, the planning side of projects to make sure that for a principal level that we are looking about looking after the tile or the environment um, and we're also being efficient and effective in terms of the projects that we're putting forward yeah do you have a rough headcount on the agency roughly underneath the board obviously oh gosh that's a, a great question Callum and not one I can put my finger on right now but that's oh, all good no worries no worries I thought oh, I'd just throw it in there I mean, here's it a guess. I'm going to say between 10 to 12 full-time equivalents yep. and uh, consultants on tech because you do need that project level, project management experience to give you the specialised uh, information that's required to form a project and to fund it yes. and deliver it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, and moving us from moving on now to the, uh, the devastation, uh, perhaps you can give us a... I guess a sense of the scale of damage and loss and the loss of livelihoods for people as well. Because um, throughout doing my research, I realized that, that this was far worse than actually I thought it would be just looking for a TV screen and watching it happen. Uh, the, the, the cost was just, yeah, as we've discussed, is um, seriously significant. So yeah, maybe you can give us a quick run through as to the scale of the damage. Yeah, so look, I'll, I'll start off and then I, I, I'll, I suppose I'll preface this by saying these are the, the information the stats that I've got to hand, and I know some cool. of them might not be as current as they were, um, but as you've pointed out, the cyclone hit in mid-February 2023. Um, unfortunately, we had eight lives lost in Hawke's Bay, uh, which if you think of natural disasters is, is just terrible. Um, there was a national state of emergency declared um, for that cyclone, and I think from memory it's the th only the third in New Zealand's history that we had that. To give you an idea of the rainfall, so in, in fairness and, and in context, we'd had a very wet period um, with our uh, La Nina weather patterns. We'd already had one reasonably decent rainfall event in early January. So we did have reasonably saturated catchments and we had month on month rainfall totals that were very, very high and unusual for summer. So on top of that, we had Cyclone Gabriel coming out of the, the, the tropics and I think the highest reported rainfall was 546 millimetres, which 400 millimetres fell in a 12-hour period, which gives you a 56 mil per hour rainfall intensity. That's, that's yeah. if you're living in the tropics or Singapore or somewhere like that, that's, that's biblical level rain for 12 hours. And that's, that's, that's a deluge of rain, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And... In catchments that were already particularly wet, um, you can understand why the, if you do see the hydrographs, like, like what amazing. Uh, the rivers rose yeah. so rapidly, so quickly, um, there was nowhere else for the water to go. And I think that's, uh, well, 
in the reports, it says quite clear that was one of the exacerbating factors. Um, and we have six rivers in our region that reached record levels, six of them. And three of them are major rivers. So it's, it's phenomenal. And I know, Callum, you say that looking at those pictures doesn't give it the full scale, but there's one particular image that doesn't haunt me, but I always think about it, and that's the aerial view flying over Clive towards Napier, and you see the Awataitao Fertiliser Works, and you see the Nararora and the Tutaikuri Rivers overflowing both banks, overflowing both sides of the road, and all you can see is the approach and the bridge, for the rail bridge, which got washed out, and the road bridge. That's all you can see. Otherwise, it's water. And, and that speaks, if you've been to Hawke's Bay, that speaks volumes of the scale of it just in, in the outfall side. So it, it was catastrophic. Yeah, so, and carrying on. So we had, I think, roughly six kilometres of breaches of stop banks, and that's on a 248k mm. extent. So that's a, a fair amount. And I think roughly between 28 and 30 k's of damage due to erosion. So it wiped out the flood protection system effectively. And that was all one in 100 year level event build. So they weren't poorly built. They were just designed for a different level of event. And notably the one in 500 level of storm, uh, sorry, the one in 500 level banks that we had that defended Taradale held up. So that gives you an idea of maybe where we need to go for this level of event going forward. Mm. Mm. So the roading network's probably the other big thing. Uh, it, it, didn't wipe it out, but it basically created an island for Napier. People could not escape any which way. So I think there were 16 bridges destroyed, 28 significantly damaged. You had something like 13,000 culverts gone and requiring replacement. There were 1,000 slips. And I've got all the estate highways here that were closed, and it's extensive. And I'll just quickly note them. So State Highway 2, Napier to Gisborne. Yeah, the expressway, State Highway 2 to Wairua, and the alternate road through Napier and Hastings was gone, um, Wairua to Lake Waikata Moana, State Highway 50, so there's no way out, which gives you an idea of maybe when you think about what you need to do to build resilience into a system to at least allow some, some form of escape. So it's region-wide sort of um, devastation, I guess. Uh, we lost our two substations, so we had no power. We lost all our communications, so we had no redundancies. So even though... Uh, me and my whanau were sitting reasonably okay in Havelock North. I had no idea what was going on. Three days later, we had no cell phones, no Wi-Fi, nothing. No telephone network. We were in radio silence. And that's if you've ever been in that situation, that is absolutely quite frightening. It, mm, it's one of the things yeah. that if you're used to your devices and your modern technology, uh, you're used to having updates at your fingers, notifications, when it goes to radio silence, yeah. it's a very, very scary place to be. And it really makes you contemplate we probably need to think about heading to ensure that we don't have that happen again to anybody. Uh, and there's some horrible stories of people who, I'm going to use the word, lost their children, basically, who are at boarding school, who the kids were sent for the right reasons elsewhere, but they had no way of informing the parents. So you have parents out of the region who couldn't contact schools to understand where children were, and that would be even more frightening. So it, it's, yeah, gotcha. yeah. it's socially overwhelming, I think, is where I'm sort of getting to. Um, just lastly, Calvin, in terms of the costs, um, I just got one estimate here. So horticulture, for example, is a big part of the region. Uh, we had 35% of last year's crop wiped out. And that's sort of roughly 520 million, roughly, probably a bit more actually on, on uh, costs that are a bit more accurate now, given we've moved on. Uh, and an estimated 560-odd million for replanting and reinstatement. That's just one sector. So I could go on, but I won't. Wow. <laughs> it just shows you the scale. No, yes. I know there's numbers. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were the, cul the 13,000 culverts gone, did you say? That's correct, yeah. Did I hear that earlier? earlier? Um, and with all where it's been flooded before, um, I think Wairoa might be something I read about is a particular catchment that was warned about not having a decent flood protection scheme in place. Um, that's a bit of a side note, but... Can you re are the, are the councils looking to rebuild where these houses previously were, or is it kind of uh, no? We'll look to maybe reposition somewhere else, or we'll just strengthen up the, the the civil infrastructure to be able to accommodate events like this in the future. What is there any yeah thoughts on things that are being done about that? Yeah, so uh, so the, the councils led the I think what was called the fossil program, and the acronym for that I think is the future yeah. of severely affected land. 
as a as an acronym, and that sort of looked at the the housing that was at that time yep. red and yellow stickered, um, and an assessment of categorisation ranging from category one safe yep. through to category three unsafe, uh, and within category two you had some different different categories. So the councils led that, um, and they did quite an extensive bit of work to determine what was required to make some of those category two determinations yep. move back to category one. Putting aside category three for now, uh, and I suppose that is the answer to the question you, you were posing, Callum. So, in terms of rebuilding, where you've got category two housing, uh, particularly two C, which I think stands well, I know C stands for community, yeah. so community scheme, uh, where a redesigned and improved—I'll use the word resilient, one of my favourite words—resilient flood yep. infrastructure can be built then they will move down from category two right. to category one. So the council has done most of that work. They're leading that sort of kaupapa, uh, and it's all very evidentiary-based, um, and it's just a matter of sequencing that work. Um, and there's some other planning barriers I can talk about, which are probably quite pertinent, around the rebuild of the stock banks um, that we will assist with as a recovery agency. So that our role is supporting the council to undertake that work, making sure that everyone's taken on that journey. And if there are... Uh, I suppose barriers and a good planning barrier would be the resource management process at the moment. If you took a normal track consenting process, how long would that take? And what can we do to alleviate some of the, that concern and those barriers uh, by A, working together early with mana whenua, with the community, um, with the councils to take everyone on the journey to design something which is going to be robust, agree that's what it's going to look like and then work through what the more appropriate planning track would be, and that could be using special legislation, it could be using the cycling recovery legislation at the moment we've got. Um, but that's, mm. a, I suppose, a quite a useful um, planning lens on that particular problem. And that's something we're doing at the moment, which is very much a live issue. Um, and to answer your former question, that sort of moves those categorised houses from that 2C categorisation back to two, uh, category one, which is safe. Yeah, okay. Um, was there investment in these areas before or has it took this event to really wake us a lot of the community up say actually we do need to be investing in these these certainly for uh, Auckland we've realized that our stormwater infrastructure is shocking but anyway we're talking about Hawke's Bay here what was that um like mate I, I, I think you're right I think you've hit the nail on the head uh, I think there's been years of underinvestment in the existing networks particularly urban for stormwater Perhaps in the more recent developments, like where I live in Havelock North, I live in the Burbs, uh, and we had our stormwater network just coped. But yeah. some existing ones in, the, in Havelock North did not. So I think you're right about that. There's been a lack of infrastructural spend on the right design. So you're, you're right about that. And I, I think the second part of the question you've asked, I think, yes, there's a lot of work to do to ensure that what we do build back is resilient. And that's, that has to be a focus. There's no point building back what we had before. Mm. Um, we know with climate change or a severely, you know, a, a climate that's actually changing as we sit and speak, and there's a higher frequency of those events that are going to turn up on our doorstep. And it may not be cyclones. It could be droughts and various other bits and pieces. But most likely in this case, we're going to get more cyclones and more rainfall events. We need to plan for that eventuality. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything specifically about uh, Hawke's Bay, the Hawke's Bay region's geography that makes maybe makes it a bit more prone? Is it is it all of those rivers that are running in, perhaps? And obviously the infrastructure plays a role, but is there anything actually about the geography itself that actually could be an exacerbating effect on, on the, the actual floods that happened? Uh, y yes. The answer is yes. They are natural yeah. floodplains. Um, we have a history, it's probably a sad, checkered history of modifying rivers in this region. Um, I, yeah. I guess we all do that. We defend rivers, but we've actually modified their course. We've taken them away from some areas they used to flow. Um, and there's a reason why it's called the Hitatonga Plains, because it's a floodplain. So we need to acknowledge we're living on a floodplain. We need to acknowledge that we're living on the coast and we've got some issues in our coastline with coastal erosion at the moment. Um, we've got sea level rise. We know that's occurring. So we do need to be mindful of where things are now and perhaps think carefully about where we need to put things in the future and that's infrastructure, probably also some land use activities um, around the urban fringe, and maybe some of the uh, the industrial area activities as well. I mean, that, these are all long game conversations. It's not really the remit of the agency itself, but we do need to be mindful of them. I think that's the, yeah. the planning focus that you need to take on these things. It's not a short term gig. We need to be thinking 
20, 30, 40 years out. Cool, cool. And I do want to come back to, I guess, the more long-term planning that's going into this as well. Um, I'll, I'll circle back in on that shortly after. Is there been any, I guess, obstacles on the regulatory side of things that you've kind of had to come up against throughout this process, being in the agency at all? Um, planning obstacles? I, I suppose the main one would, would be the... Um, I'm going to say the word perceived, the perceived slowness of the Resource Management Act. Uh, and I use the okay. word perceived because it doesn't need to be slow. I think sometimes the way we design projects, uh, and this is not a slight at local authorities, not a slight at the government, but I, I, in the space I work outside my, at my agency head on, I work with Iwin Hapu extensively around the country. And one of their greatest bugbears is the fact that they aren't engaged in the co-design of projects from the get-go. They react to things they're given. So I, I think that's sometimes a significant holdup for people and they perceive that perhaps it's just hard to deal with the community. It's hard to deal with mana whenua. Um, let's try and ram this through some other way. And that's an historical approach. The more modern approach, I think, is let's work together. And I think mm. Matariki Co-Governance Forum is excellent for that. They sort of provide that platform for Hawke's Bay to sort of get over that history we've had in terms of not engaging properly. So that's probably less of an issue. I think it's more the we need to frame these projects up, we need to work expediently, and we, then we need to, once we agree on the project, select the best planning track we can and then lobby the government if we need to, to get special purpose legislation, if that's a requirement, or potentially they mm. might do, a, do it for us if they're going through some kind of fast track consenting process, which it appears the government's doing at the moment. Is that right? I wasn't actually familiar with that. Okay, cool. I'll make a note of that. Um, you've moved, we've moved out of emergency phase now. That was quite a while ago. What, what stages are we in in the recovery? How would you describe it? Yeah, so uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I think we do have a habit, um, not so much us, but in the community of using words that maybe are a bit duplicitous. So you know, the initial restoration phase, I think, so we've got a three-phase cycle. We've got a, a restoration phase, which is a zero to six month kind of cycle. And that's really all about making sure that you take people out of harm's way, you look after the environment, you restore the lifeline infrastructure that needs to be restored right now to make people or allow people to actually live and allow people to move on as best they can. Uh, and after that period, you've got your kind of recovery mm -hmm. phase, which is more six to 18 months. And that's kind of the phase we're at the moment. And those are sort of uh, okay. short to medium term projects that you really need to get up to speed on. And that's a, a flood recovery network for us. So the storm, uh, sorry, the, um, the stop bank network for us is a good example of that. That's a, a short to medium term project we need to get across the line to ensure those category two housings and dwellings can move to category one so they're safe. So that, that's the recovery kind of phase. And then there's the longer term sort of resilience uh, phase that we need to move into. And honestly, Callum, that's probably 18 months to, I'm going to say 20 years. It, it's that kind of time frame we're looking at because some of these projects will be long lived. And that's wow. more, it's, it's not because uh, Planner Billy thinks that's the right time frame. It's just fiscally, it's hard to get money to elevate expressways and make them four lanes, or it's hard to get money to um, completely fix the communication network in one region. Um, it's difficult to get a workforce to do that work because everyone, everybody is suffering the same uh, level of workforce, uh, I suppose, lack of capacity in that area. Uh, then there's the sort of cost of materials keep on going up. So that's my sort of realistic play on it. But it's the resilience things we need to focus on, right? And that's, yeah. the, that's the key for me. Um, that's not to say that recovery projects aren't resilient. So it would be foolish to build a stop bank back at the same height at the moment and leave it there. You might do it as a short-term measure, but what you would do is plan to ensure that you actually build that up to whatever the design level it needs to be to ensure that it can sustain a storm that's similar to, or maybe a slightly larger than Cyclone Gabriel, God forbid. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just a note on these resilience um, initiatives or programs, whatever you want to call them, are, you, are these a mixture of being retrofitted, so they're being upgraded essentially, or is there a mixture of new infrastructure being put in as well? Yeah, that's a really good question, Kellen. Um, at the moment, I think we are really looking at what we've got that's existing. 
and how can we make that more resilient? Okay. However, there is an element, and this is where I apply my planning lens to asking that question, is it in the right place? So mm, let's yeah. take, for example, one of the bridges that got blown out. You can take anyone you like, but you need to ask yourself the question, is that in the right place? Does it need to be there? If it does need to be there, we need to design it in such a way that it will work with a potentially a stop bank, which is going to be higher inside of it, uh, with enough clearance that doesn't get wiped out by the next storm that comes through. So those kind of questions are really front of mind for me, apply my planning lens. Um, so I think it's a mix. There will be new projects. Um, I suspect you will see projects around water supply, particularly, that will be new. Uh, and, and that's, you know, your sort of your, your drinking water supplies that were fine and dandy for the last 30, 40 years, but got overwhelmed in the Cyclone Gabriel situation. And if you haven't got a drinking water supply, you're lacking your lifeline infrastructure for your community. So it's an essential must have. Uh, and those are the things we need to ensure um, are elevated in that list of, of projects that and it will be a long list, but we need to prioritize those ones that in my, in my mind, at least are lifeline infrastructure, the things that we fundamentally need to survive an event. Cool. Is there anything else you would, you would I guess, term as lifeline infrastructure, water being an obvious one? Yeah, well, water's an obvious one. I think, um, judging from uh, Cyclone Gabriel, I think our roading infrastructure is wholly lacking. Um, mm. And I'll, I'll stay. I'll stay clear of the argument around two and four lanes for the expressway. But that expressway had about a meter and a half of water on it. No one could go anywhere unless you had half a craft or a boat. So people can't escape, and you need people to get out if they need to get out. And it's similar with an earthquake. If you you need things that or a lifeline infrastructure for people to actually escape and move to, and also to get goods into without having to fly them by helicopter or come in by boat. So mm. an, an asset like that, for example, you need to think about elevating it to make it more resilient. Um, you need to think about how people can escape from areas. Um, and you also need to think about how people can get goods and supplies into areas. And the last one, I think, for me, or two more actually, the, the second to last one is our hospital facilities. We've got one big hospital, which is pretty old in, in Hastings. We've got nothing short of medical centres in Napier. I, I do think we need to think about a fit-for-purpose hospital that can actually deal with two decent-sized cities that can also have its own level of resilience built into it. And lastly, communications, because comms for me is huge. Like that's the the thing that surprised me the most in this day and age, we in, in media comms blackout, and we need to make sure we don't do that again. So we've got some redundant systems in place um, to assist our first providers and essential service workers, and also to ensure that people who maybe aren't affected can get messages to people who may be affected, because that's the other element mm. of this uh, disaster that I think you, you would hear about all the time, and that's the resilience of people. People are very resilient. They will work together well under pressure. Um, we don't want to do that all the time. We don't want to rely on that, but we need to assist that goodwill through good planning. And so I, I imagine there's a lot of, there's, I saw loads of volunteering and community programs. And as you said earlier, a lot of these um, initiatives are community led as well, aren't they? So, you know, it's good to see everyone coming together. Um, other, one thing I was really keen to touch on is other, I guess, uh, these environmental resilience programs, whether it be transport infrastructure or anything else uh, to fit within that term. Is there anything else, I guess, notable that would be good for us to talk about or interesting for other planners to hear? Maybe it's something that's maybe not been considered before. It's just interesting from a planning point of view, I guess. From my perspective, I think any opportunity to think about long-term and spatial planning is an opportunity to think about alternatives to what you're doing and what's been done previously. It's also a great chance to weave in some of the indigenous frameworks like Tamano Tawai, for example, that sits in the National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management. Um, that's got a wonderful and quite articulate and beautiful mm -hmm. hierarchy, which puts the tile of the environment first. Then it puts the needs of people second, and finally, economic uses third. That's probably not going to be the flavour of the month if you're a developer or if you're an exporter, but inherently, as a person, I think it works really well as a frame. So applying frameworks like that, I think, is important. Thinking about nature-based solutions. If you we have a floodplain, we have very big rural catchments um, with very, very good farmers on them who operate in a very good way. Uh, how do we assist them to apply nature-based solutions to maybe retain some of that water in that landscape? 
how do we work together to enhance biodiversity within those uh, areas of floodplain and within the area of protection that you might put in place? And it might not just be limited to physical works for stop banks. Uh, you might have specific areas that we know we get high rainfalls. Maybe we need to think about retiring certain parts of certain catchments. Not all of them. I don't want to go crazy. But we need to, I think, investigate how we get the best bang for buck with the best solutions available. Uh, and if that means, I think, some land use change, then maybe that's something we should at least consider. Um, but I, I caveat that. That's a, that's a billy approach to this. I think it's trying to apply that long-term lens, and I don't want to spook horses or anything. That's not the view of the, the agency yeah, or the board yeah. or anyone else, actually. It's just my own personal view. But I do know a lot of planners, when they get together, like to think about what if, what, why do we have to build it this way? Can we work with our good friends, the engineers, to design something which is a bit more sympathetic to, to tile? Can we use some of those frameworks to maybe get better outputs? And in doing that, do we then take on the uh, mana whenua, tangata whenua and the community on that journey with us? Do we have those mixed-use spaces that we can create? Um, I think there's lots of opportunity to explore those things. It's not just about absolute protection. It's about how you utilise those spaces, given that their, their role is to protect us. And economically, lots of small businesses and, and larger businesses were affected with this, but um, small businesses especially. How is the community doing, I guess, from a, an economic point of view? Is the town centre bustling yet? Are people sort of returned? Um and also, if there's anything, I guess, uh, in terms of a planning point of view, enriching the local community from an econ economic standpoint that might be being looked at as well. Anything you can comment on there, Billy? Yeah, I think my first observation is if we were to have had this conversation six months ago, I would have said that, you know, we're in a bit of a dire state here. Um, people's perception of Hawke's Bay is that it's broken and they shouldn't come here because they might get stuck here or they might be held up with roadworks or held up with, um, or rather not held up so much, but not be able to go to their favourite winery or not be able to do those things, go to our, our lovely beaches and things like that because they can't get there or they'll get held up. There's a risk they might get stuck here. So I, I think we've moved on a lot in terms of that perception, um, maybe not from a planning lens, but from a, to, to use a John Keyism, a Hawke's Bay Inc. lens, I think the region's done very yeah. well at coming together to communicate to New Zealand that we are still in that state of my mind, that sort of reflection and grievance in some parts of the healing process, but we are open yeah. to business and come and have a look, come and see us, come back, uh, come and have some of our famous coffee, come to the wineries, come and explore the beaches, um, but just be mindful of the people that are still suffering. And there are a lot of people that are still mm. suffering. And again, like my earlier message, Callum, we kind of need to take them on the journey with us and make sure we don't leave them behind. Yeah. Um, as for the town centres, I think that, uh, to be fair, I haven't been to Wairua for the last four months. Um, and last time I was there, it, um, to, it, to be honest, it was looking a little bit sad. Um, I do understand they've put a lot of work into ensuring that the town centre... Um, has a level of vibrancy and there's support there for those local retailers. But let's be honest, in some, some of those rural areas, it is really, really tough. And they're going to be doing it tough for a while. And I think perhaps using that Hawke's Bay Inc. lens on it, I think it's incumbent on us to ensure that those areas, like my old, old hometown of Waipawa, um, doesn't lose its intrinsic fabric of being. Um, and that we ensure that they remain on the map, basically. Um, and sometimes we have to maybe forego some of our projects to ensure funding goes to those places, potentially, is, it, is something I would say. I don't know if that's happening as yet. I do know the agency's alive to those concerns and making sure that um, our good friends in Central Hawke's Bay and Wairua um, do get the funding they need to recover. Um, and that's also urban and rural. Um, but I, I guess, Callum, if my viewing of um, the Art Deco Festival, which just concluded on Sunday, is anything to go by. And I had to go to the, through Napier to get to the square in Patani, um, the town was pumping. So people are coming back, which is good to see. Um, there's money coming into the economy. Uh, and you know that, that, as we know, as planners, um, you need that critical mass. You need to spool the machine up. We just need to make sure the machine 
distribute that wealth out to the far reaches of the community because they are our communities too. We can't just think we live in little little headlock north or little Napier. We need to think a wider a wider lens, perhaps, mm. to make sure that Hawke's Bay, Tamata Maui does recover. And that, that is fully the agency's remit. Well, I was, I was just thinking back the other day, if we've had COVID, which massively affected a lot of small businesses, lack of tourism, mm. people coming in and out of the region, then having this event thrown on top of it, just, yeah, double whammy of, of devastation. So, yeah, that's that's good to hear. That's good to hear people are... Um, yeah, with the Art Deco, because you do attract quite a few good um, events you're out of your way. So anyone listening, if you haven't been down there, get down there and get amongst it. Yeah. Yes, come to Hawke's Bay, enjoy some sun. Yeah, yeah. Drink some wine. I'm down for that. Um, long-term planning <laughs> into the future, because you, you mentioned this earlier, and that's something you're quite passionate about. Um, perhaps we can go into a bit of a discussion yes. around that. Um, yeah, you, if you want to take the floor, maybe chime in on what's been looked at or being considered. Yes, well, I think that is part of the um, the regional recovery plan 2.0 yep. version two. Um, so we we are looking at a top down approach for that. So when I say top down, we're looking at those key key projects that we need to make sure um, have maximum visibility and get across the line. And we need to, I guess, as a a, re as a recovery agency in our super enabler hat. Uh, ensure that uh, we support those projects to be implemented in a timely manner. Um, and where we need to intersect with government funding cycles, we should be doing that, and we are doing that um, right at the moment, um, to make sure that those projects are funded in a way that um, is equitable for the, the region, the districts in the region and the communities. Um, and I guess also mindful that Cyclone Gabriel didn't always affect Hawke's Bay. There was, Auckland got badly affected by it and our southern neighbours as well. So ensuring that we all work together as a nation, I think, to make sure that the full effect of Cyclone Gabrielle um, is taken into account. So Plan 2.0 is really important for us. Uh, it does list those mainstream projects. Um, and as I think we've discussed, you know, that, that sort of spatial planning is fundamental to that. So whilst Plan 2.0 lists the projects and it talks about how we might fund them and we, we sequencing of those projects and leveraging from one project to another, I think it's a spatial lens applied to that, which is fundamentally important. And that's, from a planning perspective, I think this is the biggest opportunity from, again, a terrible, terrible cloud. So the silver lining is the chance to spatially plan a better future for Tamata Amori Hawks Bay. And there are many, many elements to that and many scales. So I think the agency, to be fair to the agency, we're doing the macro level. That's all we probably can do. And remembering we're not a decision-making body. We're, we are effectively non-statutory and we are the, I suppose, the supporting act to the councils and the government and the way they restore and recover and make things more resilient. But the spatial planning lens is fundamentally important. It is something that is front of mind for me. Um, and I guess I've always had that bent, Callum, in my planning practice, looking spatially and looking long-term. And that does come from working with Evian Hapu because they've been here for thousands of years they're not going anywhere they can't sell their land they're developing it and they're making the best of what they've got uh, and they're a wonderful uh, educational tool for planners i think if you, so planners if you're out there if you get an opportunity to work for Ewe and hapu you should definitely take it up you'll learn amazing things and you have you learn about that long-term lens you learn about those indigenous frameworks um, and it makes sense so from a spatial planning perspective yes big opportunities um, I think it's the, the risk of spatial planning is you sometimes can lose the wood for the trees a little bit, and you do need to take everyone on that journey. So obviously, uh, Cyclone Gabriel affected some assets and some bits of infrastructure more in some districts than others. But of course, the infrastructure runs through all the districts. So when it comes to how you fund that and how it looks and how it's designed, I think everyone has an interest, particularly yes. in the dollar amount. And that's fair because we're struggling to pay for the damage we've got now in some areas like Wallow and Central Hawks Bay District. Um, so it's, it's a, a careful discussion around location. It's a careful discussion around what you're doing and the drivers for that. And again, this is all about resilience from our perspective. So let's take our friendly example I use all the time, the, the two-lane two expressway. We can't have that underwater again. It just can't happen. So whatever it looks like, it, you could keep it two lane, doesn't make any sense to me, make more sense to allow for growth and make it two four lanes, but you need to elevate it to make it resilient, whatever you do. You need to make the bridges over it 
higher so they can actually allow water to flow under them better, which to me makes perfect sense. But perhaps when it comes to cost and design, not being an engineer, I might um, leave that one. <laughs> but I, I think we just need to think about the, the what we do and how we do it and the where we do it. And we need to ask those questions <laughs> in a critical way. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Is this what we need for five years? Is what we need for 10 years? Will we build this thing for the next 20 or 30 years? And if it's a 20 or 30 year lens, then it's fundamentally important it's done right. And it's done in a way which is cost effective, but which it has reason to and then it drag on like your transmission gullies, for example, where the cost seems to quadruple in 20 years um, and do it in a way which means that do it once and do it right. Well, thanks for explaining that, Billy, because despite this being a very negative thing for the whole, uh, as you said, there's a silver lining, there's positives that could be seen. There's a light through the tunnel here as a change of being able to do things a little bit better the second time around. Um, so, yeah, yeah. No, thanks for that, mate. Um is there any other additional aspects um, that would you feel would be important to discuss? Anything you want to mention that we've not already covered? Yeah, look, I, I will. And um, I guess this is a, it's a, a an almost a, a planning, I think it was a planning fabric, this one. So this, this is about the differences between general tidal land and Fenua Māori, Māori land. Uh, and most planners will understand this uh, and, I don't want to labour the point, but there are subtle differences and nuances between general land and Māori land. You can't apply the same framework or the same Western framework to Māori land that you can to general land. So whatever you are doing in the planning, planning field, uh, a, a great learning from our experience in dealing with uh, our tangata whenua and our region is to make sure that you work with them very early and you listen to them. You understand their grievances, you understand their values, you understand their aspirations, and you record those things in a way which they wish them to be recorded, and you build a framework around what you're trying to achieve based on those things, and you take Tangata Whenua with you on that journey. Because if you don't do that, we end up with what amounts to a two-track engagement for whatever you're looking at. Uh, and we all know with current governments uh, and also the climate in general, this, this at the moment is the last disaster that this country's faced, but there's one around the corner. So we need to optimise opportunities to recover. Uh, and sometimes it takes a slightly longer track to do that. And generally, when you work with Evian Hapu, you need to work with their timeframes in terms of their decision-making processes with their by committees and when they conduct their particular hui. Uh, and you need to ensure that the aspirations of those tangata whenua are taken with you in achieving the outcome you wish to achieve. Um, if you don't do that, then we end up in a situation where things don't happen. One track shoots off in the distance, the other one is down here somewhere. And all we end up doing is deepening those inequities that do exist unfortunately in our society mm. so that, that's one of the learnings that i'd like to just uh i suppose advance to planners out there um and look it's hard it's sometimes it's hard to ask yes. questions it's hard to yep. be on a mud eye if you're um not moldy and look i'm pakiha uh, so um it, it's one of those things you need to go through the nerve nervousness process you need to go on to the mud eye you need to ask the questions and you need to be prepared for the approach and like I said before, and I've said I think a couple of times this podcast, there are still people out there who are grieving, you know, and we need to acknowledge that and we need to work with them to lean into it and find solutions that work for them to ensure they also recover. And for me, mm -hmm. that's the, and from a planning perspective, that is the biggest learning for me out of this whole process is to ensure that we do that uh, in a way that doesn't worsen those inequities. And, and I, like I, I said to, uh, Patane Fano when wow. I was talking to them at uh, Huya Hapu. Um, and that is in the front of mind for the recovery agency is to make sure that Tamata Maui recovers fully. And that means taking Tangata Fina with us. We can't leave them behind. It just does not work. Yeah. That's an amazing bit of wisdom. Thanks you thank you for sharing that, Billy. Um that will be well received with the audience, I think, for sure. Um is where where else can people follow you? Uh, know about your services. Um, I to mention you've got your own consultancy, obviously Broth Resource Management. Uh, is there anywhere else people can follow you? Maybe on LinkedIn. Yeah, I've got a LinkedIn profile. Um, 
I think it's under Billy Bruff, I think, or, or Bruff Resource Management. You can search that up. Um, I do have a website, but I've only got a web cover page, so it's um, it's, it's pretty poor. I, I guess most of my uh, uh, work um, is from um, people saying, or well, historically people just giving me more work, I guess, from existing clients, so I'm lucky in that respect. Um, but look, uh, in terms of my experience, I'm always happy to com have a conversation with Kurero with people if they want any um, if they think of them worth talking to about any kind of advice or anything like that, I'm happy to have a discussion over a, a coffee sometime or a chat. Um, one thing I've learned in my profession, I think the, the older and wiser, well, hopefully wiser, that you get the more you need to actually share to young planners to ensure yeah. that maybe they don't, don't fall into the same traps that, um, that I did. And I found a, a heap of them um, in my younger years. So um, yeah, happy to share that wisdom. Cool. Excellent. Thank you, Billy. And um, is there anywhere else people can either contribute or volunteer or get involved in some way if they do want to come down to Hawke's Bay and, and help out the community? Is there any efforts that people can get behind that you know of? Um, there was a volunteer service that was operating, I think, in the initial restoration phase. I think that's now ceased. Um, but okay. if, if you are of a cool. mind to um, pitch in and assist, I know... Um, there will likely be uh, jobs that can be undertaken. Um, but I, I would probably contact the uh, Hastings District Council, Nature City Council. They might know more about where people can go. Um, cool. But in fairness, I think um, the early restoration sort of works was undertaken some time ago, and we're into that kind of um, sort recovery task force orientation work, which is getting rid of the other 1.5 billion tonnes of sediment and silt and rubbish that's sitting on productive land. And that's more than spades. I, I know we can do wonderful things together, but sometimes um, an EX300 is probably the better option in a big dump truck. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of that's on fertile land as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and that's the reason why you would have seen recently the government announced another, I think it's 56 million um, for the Salt Recovery Task Force. Um, yeah, so it's working quite effectively at the moment. Um, they're very, very efficient. They've got jobs logged. Um, they go in there and remove the sediment. Um, they've got these pretty amazing machines, actually, which um, they look like something out of Goldbrush, if you watch that program, like a uh, one of those trommel, shaker trommel things which shakes out the silt from the um, hard debris. They've got uh, the, um, the big um, chippers that have big track chippers. They run in there and they chip up all the hardwood and they recycle what they can out of the other material they're doing a wonderful job and it's great they've got some more more funding to do that because productive mm -hmm. land as you know kind of yep. some of those things that god's not making any more of so we need to maximize what we can of it so i think that's um that's money very well spent yeah good good well i'll probably wrap it up about there billy thank you ever so much for coming on today and uh, i'm sure the audience will learn a lot uh, through your experiences and all the efforts that's gone into the the recovery so thank you mate thanks for having me Callum.